Good morning, everyone. Today gives me the privilege to read Revelation chapter 14, verse 1 to 15, verse 4. If you do not have a physical copy of a Bible, we have a lovely collection here, right? Uh, SLE Church loves to have a physical copy with you, so if you have a chance, have a look. If not, well, you can find some somewhere. Revelation chapter 14, starting from verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn the song except 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits from God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And there will have no rest, day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds Follow them. Then I look and behold a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it in the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress 
as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. And as we remember back to the early chapters in Revelation, how you called your church to have ears to hear, we pray that we would be people today who have ears to hear what the Spirit says. Give us uh, these ears that we might listen, that we might hear, we might be encouraged to keep persevering and enduring, uh, and to do all these things for your glory and our eternal joy. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's that time of the year again. The jacarandas are out. The city of Brisbane, places around uh, parks across the city and all around UQ are flush with the colour purple. It also means it's exam time. Sorry, guys. I just... I have to laugh a little bit every time I see the jacarandas because I never noticed them until after I graduated. Um, and now when I see them, I'm like, oh yeah, the students are going through exams. I'm so glad I'm not doing that anymore. All right. But you know that when the jacarandas bloom, it's a sign for all the students that you must endure. You must endure the next few weeks of intense study and exams until it's all finished, maybe at least for the summer. Or when you're moving house, right? You know the date is approaching and the date of the move is set. You do not wait around until the last minute to start packing. You do not wait until the evening before you move to start putting things in boxes. No, you get ready in advance. Anyone who has had to move house knows that it is often a long and sometimes stressful process and requires endurance to get through to the other side as you have moved and then unpacked and settled in. Uh, one of the things I often say to couples who are getting married as I counsel them, one word of advice, it is much easier being married than it is getting married. Why do I say that? Because the marriage event, the wedding event is often so stressful uh, and requires so much energy and effort that you must endure to get through the planning and the preparations to enjoy married life together. There are all sorts of areas of life that require endurance. Parenting a newborn child, and getting up with all the late night feeds, the endless attention that is required, the interrupted sleep. The regular nine to five working week, which with its seemingly endless cycle of Monday mornings to Friday evenings, 48 weeks in the year, 40 plus years of your life. Our aging bodies with more pains and slowing movements with disease and decay. There are very few parts of life that are easy and carefree. Life requires endurance. So how much more than being a Christian? 
Already in the book of Revelation, the church has been called to endure. Remember in the early chapters, in chapters 2 and 3, in that section addressed to these seven churches, each church is called to endure, to remain steadfast and holding fast to Jesus, to wait patiently for his return. Endurance marks the life of a believer. And in today's passage, we're going to be reminded of the ultimate end point for which we are enduring, the ultimate destination for those who follow the Lamb and for those who follow the beasts from our last chapter. And for everyone in this room, everyone in our world, there are two ultimate destinations to which we are traveling. So let me ask everyone here today, which destination will you arrive at? Which destination will you endure to the end for? We begin our passage then, looking uh, uh, in in chapter 14, and we see John who looks and sees. In verse 1, you'll notice that he looks and sees Mount Zion, uh, the heavenly city, and there he sees the Lamb standing. The Lamb, as we've already seen through the book of Revelation, standing in uh, symbolic for Jesus. We see Jesus standing ready for action. And then John sees, with Jesus standing there, he sees 144,000 people. Now, we met the 144,000 for the first time in Revelation chapter 7. But to recap very briefly, the 144,000 is representative of all of God's people through all of time. The number 12 in the, in, in, within the Bible is often the number symbolic of God's people. And so what we have here is the number 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. Three tens. Trip, uh, ten is the number of, multi, of um, magnitude, of completion. Uh, that it's three times is a number of intensity. So uh, 144,000, the complete and the whole number of God's people. Or as with the book of Revelation has put it so far, those who have conquered by the blood of the Lamb and those who have witnessed to the gospel because they do not love their lives more than following Christ. Throughout these opening five verses, you get a series of identity markers, uh, further identity markers of who these 144,000 are. And so in the first five verses, we'll notice in verse 1 that the 144,000 have the name of God written on their foreheads. Now, you notice that this comes really closely afterwards in chapter 13, verse 16, where there non-believers have the mark of the beast on their foreheads. Here in chapter 14, verse 1, believers have the mark of God on them. Now, this leads me to a little tangent that we have to go on for a little moment. A little bit of an elephant in the room. If you Google the question, what is the mark of the beast, you are going to get lots of really unhelpful and flat-out wrong ideas and conspiracies. Let me be clear. The mark of the beast is not some barcode that will be tattooed on you. It is not some microchip that will be implanted in your wrist or your forehead. And whatever your opinion on the vaccine, the mark of the beast is not the current COVID-19 vaccine. As with pretty much everything in the book of Revelation, the Old Testament is going to be there to inform us as to what this symbol means. The Old Testament helps us understand most of the imagery within the book of Revelation. And in this case, we have to go back to Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4. In Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, Ezekiel is given a vision of God telling a man to pass through the city of Jerusalem. This man will put a mark on the forehead 
of every person who has not committed idolatry. So the mark in Ezekiel and the mark here in Revelation 13 and 14 is basically another way of saying that God knows who are his and who are not. Anyone who is not a believer already has the mark of the beast on them. Let me say that again. Anyone who is not a believer already has the mark of the beast on them. Anyone who is a follower of Jesus already has the mark of the Father on them. That's all this is saying. Okay, let's come back to the text now. So back to the passage in verse 2, John goes from seeing these things to hearing now. He hears a voice singular, but it's not a singular voice. The voice is like the roar of many waters, the sound of thunder, the sound of a full orchestra of harpers playing together. It's an overwhelming sea of noise. It is the sound of God's people singing together. Now, if you've ever been to a packed stadium, a sports stadium or a special event, you will know the roar of thousands of people. Now try to imagine the sound of billions upon billions. In verse 3, they are singing a song before the heavenly realm, a song that no one knows except the 144,000. And then in verse 4 and 5, we're given a series of quick success, in quick succession uh, of pictures uh, that tell us that this 144,000, this group of people, are exclusively devoted to God alone. So very quickly, in verse 4, we read that the 144,000 have not defiled themselves with women. They are virgins. Now, this is really odd. If you're reading this and going, what the heck is this all about? What is Pastor Steve going to say? Well, here's what I'm going to say. (laughs) This is really odd. I don't think it's saying that the 144,000 are only men. What's going on here? Throughout the Bible, idolatry, that is worshipping anything other than God himself, is often equated with spiritual adultery. God's people throughout the Bible are metaphorically married to God. Right, which is why we'll see in a few months' time when we get to Revelation 20 that there is a marriage between God's people and the Lamb. Worshipping anything else is an act of spiritual adultery then. Now, the Apostle Paul picks up on this same image and he, uses it, he spins it positively in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, if you want to follow that up, where he says that the Christian church is betrothed to Jesus as a pure bride. So this picture of not being defiled by women, of being virgins, is another way of saying that the 144,000 have remained faithful to Jesus, which as you read on in verse 4 is exactly what John is saying. He says in the middle of verse 4 that these follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Their first allegiance is to Jesus. They are spoken of as first fruits of the redeemed, picking up on this idea of the first fruits being exclusively devoted and reserved for God. And right at the end, John says that in their mouths no lie was found, which is not saying that they're just not liars, but again, it's probably picking up another Old Testament reference, equating idolatry with lying. So in these opening verses then, John sees and hears the multitude of God's people, made up of people from every tribe, every nation and language, throughout all of history, all of those who have devoted themselves to following Jesus and persevering in the faith. They are the conquerors. As we've walked through the dragon's fury against Jesus and the church in chapter 12, as we saw the violent persecution and deception of the beasts in chapter 13, John now sees those who have remained faithful to 
uh, who've remained faithful through all of that. So no matter what life or Satan or the beasts have thrown at them, the Christians here are pictured keep following Jesus. They remain faithful to him and they will reject idolatry and false worship. So that's the opening scene, chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. And then the scene shifts. John looks up and he sees a series of angels flying overhead with a series of messages. Now, just to flag it, uh, we're going to spend a little bit more time here unpacking these details. The first angel flies overhead with an eternal gospel, we read. The word gospel is a generic word that just means good news, right? We often rightly equate it with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the greatest gospel, the greatest of all good news. But good gospel in just in general just means good news. Here, it's an eternal gospel in the sense that what the angel is about to say will, will last for eternity. It is the same message that was given when Jesus first came. It's the same message that will be given and preached until Jesus returns. And it's the same message that lasts on into eternity after that. What is the message? Well, firstly, notice in verse 6 who the message is for. It's for everyone, no matter what your race, no matter what your religion or social status. The message is for everyone, and it will require action. What's the message? Read again with me in chapter 14, verse 7. He said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. Fear God and give Him glory alone, I would add. These are big and weighty ideas. Within the context of all that's happening in Revelation 12, 13, and 14, to fear God is to not be afraid of the dragon and the beasts, but to fear the one who has the power to destroy them, God. To fear God is to worship him by following Jesus and remaining faithful to Jesus, by turning your back on false religion, on other religions, to recognize that Jesus alone is worthy of worship, to reject idolatry and false worship, to fear God and give Him glory, is to become a member of the 144,000. Why does everyone listening to this message need to fear God? We see it there in the middle of verse 7. Because the hour of judgment has come. Judgment the day when all of us, from Adam and Eve to the final child who was born, will stand before God to be judged by Him. All of our deeds will be laid out, good or bad, and not only what we have done here on earth, but most importantly, how we have treated God as our Creator, the one who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. This isn't good news, though. Or this is bad news in a way, because one of the consistent messages across the Bible is that we have a major problem. We have all rejected God as our creator. We have all rejected God's kingship over our lives, a kingship he deserves as our creator. We've all done this by seeking to rule our lives our own way. I live for myself. I will live deciding how things will happen paying no heed or attention to God's rule, or sometimes even rejecting what we know is clear. 
on this final day of judgment, when all of our deeds and how we have treated God is laid bare, it will be overwhelming. The weight of evidence against us is beyond any doubt. We would all be guilty. But the good news of the bad news is that of this eternal gospel is that anyone who fears God, who gives him glory, can and will be forgiven. God is able to forgive and he is willing to forgive with forgiveness only found in Jesus Christ. Trusting Jesus' death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and wipe away every guilt we have before him. When you come to God for forgiveness, you also come to him for new life, a life lived following Jesus as king, letting his word direct and guide your way, a life of faithfulness to him. So let me ask, have you done that? Can you say with certainty, with confidence, that you are following Jesus? Now, if you're not sure... Or even if you've said no, that's okay. But please pay attention very carefully to the following two angels. What they will have to say will put some perspective on the choice that you must make. In in verse 8, a second angel flies overhead with another message. Uh, Have a look with me at verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Babylon here is described as a prostitute, she who made the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. This this image is picked up again later on in Revelation. We'll we'll meet her again uh, in the coming months. And again here we see this metaphor of adultery, to describe idolatry in this world, spiritual adultery. Now, by the time the book of Revelation was written, the nation of Babylon was already long gone. It was actually already ancient history by the time of Revelation, 500 plus years. Uh, Babylon was the nation which ruled and reigned supreme, and throughout the Bible, it becomes an archetype, a, a picture of all people and nations who defy God and persecute God's people. Babylon, which stretches all the way back to Genesis chapter 11, or Genesis chapter 10, I should say, where we see the Tower of Babel, this monument of human defiance of God. Babel, Babylon, represents all that defies God. Now, I I know I joked a few weeks ago that Sydney was Babylon, and there's truth to that, but there's also truth that Babylon is all around us. Babylon is a picture of this world that does not know and will not bow down to Christ. We all live in Babylon. The good news of this angel is that she has fallen. The great persecutor and tempter of God's people who has seduced and tempted believers to follow after her is now gone, brought to nothing. At the final judgment, her, along with Satan, will be gone. Now, if that doesn't sound like too bad news, well, a third angel comes with a darker message, a warning that everyone needs to hear. Have a look with me at verse 9 to 11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. 
and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. See, the warning is this. Anyone who is not following the Lamb is following the beasts. And anyone who worships the beast has, its mark, has the mark of its name on them. And if that is you, then you will eventually drink from the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. The cup is often used in the Old Testament as a picture of God's wrath. God's wrath being poured into this cup, filling it to the brim, and eventually it will be poured out on those who follow and worship the beasts. And then in verse 10, we read shockingly that their torment will be with fire and sulfur Uh, Again, a picture of unyielding judgment and that the angels will stand there witnessing this judgment and it will be done in the presence of the Lamb. Now, it's important to note the presence of the Lamb there in verse 10. The Lamb will be there as part of the judgment is poured out for eternity. Sometimes it's believed and sometimes it is taught that hell is the place of the absence of God for eternity, but that's not what the Bible is saying. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Hell is the presence of the Lamb for all eternity, but not His sweet presence of light and grace and mercy and love. It is His eternal presence in wrath. A place where in verse 11 torment continues forever where there is no rest day or night hell is not a party with all of your friends and the wicked it is endless deserved suffering for the rejection of an infinitely holy and pure god hell is pure justice No one in hell will be able to scream injustice. And no one in heaven will look on and say that this is unfair. So often hell is rejected because it makes God out to be angry, punitive, instead of loving and kind. But it is always rejected by people who do not understand or comprehend or embrace the utter holiness of God. Only when we see our sins in the light of the holiness of God will we then cover our mouths and realize two profound truths, that punishment is thoroughly deserved and salvation is thoroughly undeserved. Friends, this is what awaits everyone. This is the good news because it is good that God warns us and makes us aware of it. This is the eternal news because it has not changed since Jesus first arrived and it will not change for all eternity. 
Friends, if you are here today and you are not a believer, this is good news for you that you need to hear. You need to hear that judgment and hell are real, but that forgiveness and grace and eternal life and joy are found in following Jesus. So will you do that today? If you are a follower of the Lamb, then this is also news that we must hear because the main purpose of today's passage is found right there in verses 12 to 13. Have a look at me again at verses 12 to 13. This is why John is telling us all of this. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. After, you know, everything we've seen over the past few weeks, the, the dragon's fury, the first, beats, the first beats, beast's violent persecution, and the second beast's deception, knowing that in the end, God will bring them all to judgment at some point in the future means, for now, believers must have endurance. We need to endure, to conquer what the beasts throw at us knowing that judgment is coming, knowing that it will separate believers and non-believers for eternity, knowing that there is torment to come for those who worship the beast, and knowing all of this, keep enduring for the sake of Jesus. Keep His commands and keep trusting who Jesus is and what He has said and promised. Don't fall in league with, this, with the beast. The word endurance here means a couple of things. On, on one hand, it means to hold fast. So to endure means to hold fast to the gospel you have heard and believed and learned. Hold fast to Jesus and remain faithful in following him no matter the cost. It means not quitting when things get tough, even when things get really tough. In another way, endurance also means that we must wait with patience as you are holding fast and remaining faithful, you also need to wait patiently. We are waiting for Jesus to return, to fulfill all of his promises to the church, to bring us home, to wipe away sin and death so that it is no more. There are many things in life that we need endurance for, and the Christian life is no different. But endurance for our faith, endurance in our faith is the most important thing in life because it has such profound consequences. And it is not without reward. God doesn't ask something of his people for nothing or with nothing. And out of his generosity and grace, he rewards those who follow him. You can see that, there, that little reminder in verse 13. Those who die in the Lord are blessed. Those who give their lives following Jesus will be richly blessed. Now, maybe not all of us are called to give our lives in death to follow Christ. And yet these blessings are still here, the, the blessing of all of your labors resting from that. That hard work of following Jesus will one day finish. Your deeds will follow you as well. God remembers, God will remember all that you have done to follow Christ. All of the sacrifices, all of the hardships, all of the times you said no because you wanted to follow Jesus, all of the times that you said yes to following Jesus, God remembers all of that and He will reward it and bless it. 
The message from these three angels then is relatively, is pretty clear. The good news of salvation for the faithful, the fall of Babylon, the weighty warning of judgment. No one is immune from any of this. No one is beyond judgment. Uh, we'll get an exempt, no one is, will get an exemption from it. Human history is speeding towards this final destination and what we do in this life and who we worship will matter because at some point it will be all over. In verses uh, 6 to 13, we've got judgment announced. In verses 14 to 20, we've got judgment day arriving. We've got a harvest. Uh, you turn your attention now to verse 14 to 20. You see John sees another scene, a big picture view of the day of judgment. In verse 14, he sees one like the Son of Man seated on a cloud, a picture drawn from Daniel chapter 7. The one like a Son of Man with a golden crown on his head is none other than Jesus himself. In his hand is a sickle. If you, <laughs> for most of us in this day and age of technological advancement, where we think food is grown in the supermarket, I, I saw this... Um, one post of this one girl, I, you know, bless her, you know, raised the, asked the question, why would, why would people kill animals when you can just get your meat from the supermarket? Right? A sickle is a handheld cutting tool for harvesting. It is sharp. And with a big swing and a big sweep, you'd cut down the wheat and the barley that you were aiming for, and then you'd bundle it up and collect it. Here, another angel invites Jesus to swing his sickle across the globe for the harvest is ready. I think this is a picture not only of the final day of judgment, but the picture in particular of the rescue of God's people, the harvesting of those who are saved. Because then in a moment, in verse 17, right after that, another angel coming out of the temple, also with a sickle in his hand, is invited by another, a third angel who invites him to swing his sickle across the earth and this time harvest the grapes of the earth. And so that's what this angel does. But notice in verse 19 where the grapes are gathered. They are thrown into a wine press, the wine press of the wrath of God. Now, again, throughout the Old Testament, the wine press is used as an image of judgment, the judgment of God. When you read in verse 20, this graphic picture of this judgment. See, as the wine press is trodden, as the grapes are trodden, sweet wine does not flow out from it. A river of blood comes out. As high as a horse's bridle, about your height, flowing for 1,600 stadia, a river of blood hundreds of kilometers long. But why 1,600? Uh, the number four within the Bible is often the Bible symbolic of the world, the four corners of the world, four corners of a map, the four points of a compass, north, east, west, south, and west. I got that right? Yes. Uh, ten, again, being the number of magnitude. So what we have here is four times four times ten times ten. The judgment we are seeing here, this judgment flow of blood, is a judgment that goes across the world. No one will be left out. In seeing these two harvests, John is seeing the final moment here where time has run out for everyone. 
In the final sign, John sees something amazing. He turns, we turn the page in chapter 15. Uh, he sees seven angels, seven plagues from the early chapters. Basically, John is seeing the end of all of this. At the end of chapter 15, verse 1, he sums it up. When he sees the seven angels, he is seeing the wrath of God now finished. Finished on this judgment day. The harvest is done. The judgment on the non-believers, the judgment on the beast and Satan is done. And there's no more wrath ever to be seen again for believers. And then in verse 2, chapter 15, verse 2, John sees a sea of glass mingled with fire. The sea was often a place of chaos. The sea of glass here mingled with fire of God's judgment, however, is all frozen. It's done. There is no more chaos. It is still. So in, John chapter, in Revelation 15, verse 12, uh, 2, John is able to see the 144,000 standing beside the sea, unafraid of chaos and judgment. They have harps in their hands and they are ready to sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now, why do they sing? Why now are they singing? And the answer is because that's the response of God's people when they have been saved. In Exodus chapter 15, you see the same thing. The, the song of Moses being referred to here is hyperlinking back to Exodus 15. Right, right after the ten plagues, right after the death of the firstborn, right after being rescued through the Red Sea and then the sea coming back to destroy the Egyptian army, after all that has happened, the first thing the Israelites do is break out into song, called the Song of Moses. Why do we sing? Why has God given song as a response to salvation? Well, simple. Because words alone are not enough. God's deeds are so great. His acts of salvation are so amazing that words alone are not enough to express our praise and thanksgiving to God. Song, the voices of the saved together in unison and chorus, moving our affections, our whole being towards God towards closeness to him, towards intimacy with him. And that is how God's people will spend eternity, with their whole beings, their whole person in the presence of God, moving deeper towards his beauty and his glory. The song in verses 3 to 4 is simple. They sing about what God has done. They sing about his character. They sing to call everyone to fear and glorify him. And they sing to worship God for his holiness and the goodness of his acts now revealed to everyone. They sing with joy inexpressible, a joy that will be experienced by all those who are saved. All right, at the very beginning of our passage, we saw various identity markers of the 144,000. Well, here are some final identity markers in chapter 15, verses 1 and 4. Rejoicing and song, songs focused on the Lamb. Friends, over the past few weeks, we've explored the center chapters in the book of Revelation, chapters 12 to 14. In chapters 12 to 13, we saw the heaviness of the pictures, the reminders of the spiritual warfare and the spiritual reality at work, a reality and war that if we have eyes to see, is evident all around us. Today, we're being reminded that those who follow the Lamb, who remain faithful to Jesus their whole lives, they will be saved and they will rejoice forever. But the rest who follow the beast will be judged eternally. 
The worship of Jesus is central to believers in this passage as well. Jesus alone who is worshipped, not the beasts. And it's clear that salvation and judgment is dependent on who or what you worship in this life. So brothers and sisters, friends, if you worship the Lamb, then you are called to endure. We live, we presently live in a Revelation 12 to 13 world. We need the endurance to work through what the, how the dragon rages and how the beasts attack and tempt. So stand firm, hold fast to Jesus, and wait patiently as Revelation 14 will one day come upon us. So what does endurance look like now? What does, uh, how do we go about enduring during this time? Uh, the word for endurance is used throughout the New Testament, but only in one place that I can think of is it really given a picture of what it looks like. And unfortunately, it's a picture that I'm not very keen on. Running. Uh, for anyone who knows me, I hate running. No matter how much Andrew and Ivan want to get into it, it's just not going to happen. I, I tried. I really did a few years ago to get into it. I think I'm allergic to it. Right? But even in that kind of short period of time of trying to get into running, it helped me to connect with this picture of endurance, the Christian life as a marathon race. It is a picture used in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now, see that word there at the end of verse 1? Endurance. The same endurance that believers are called to have in the face of the dragon and the beast and their eventual destruction at the coming of Jesus. John calls on Christians to endure. And we've seen that that means holding on to Jesus, waiting patiently, being faithful right, to Christ. But this picture of the marathon race gives us a, a glimpse as to how long we need to be doing that for and the difficulty of doing that. I get why a marathon image is used. Marathons are hard, very hard, also I'm told. I'm not a runner. Have I mentioned I hate running? Right? But for those who follow Christ, we are called to run this marathon. So how do you survive? How do you hold on to Jesus? How do you wait patiently for the next 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of your life. One of my friends in Perth, uh, his name is Stephen McAlpine, uh, has written that great book. It was the uh, winner of Christian Book of the Year this year. And uh, oh, look at that. I have a few copies in the, um, in the bookstore. Um, he is a runner, quite the runner. In fact, a few years ago, he trained up to do and complete his first ever full marathon, 42 kilometers. What is 42 kilometers? It is the distance between Garden City and Dreamworld. Let that sink in. I'd rather drive that, but some people won't want to run it. Now, here's a photo of him taken during the middle of that race. This is at the 10-kilometer mark. And when he posts up this photo, he had this caption. It's brilliant. Everyone smiles at 10 kilometers. Now, Stephen says that's because the first 10 kilometers of every marathon, as you've trained up for it, are apparently pretty smooth and easy. Now, if the Christian life is like a marathon race, 
that we have to endure, I suspect that a lot of us here are at the 10 kilometer mark. Maybe it's been rough in some spots, but generally it's been all right. We think we're okay, we think we're fine. We're all smiling. But Stephen tells me that at 42, at, during a 42, kilometer, uh, a, a 42 kilometer marathon race is a race of two halves, not 21 and 21, a race of the first 32 kilometers and the final 10. In this race, his first big marathon, he hit the wall hard at the 10 kilometer, with 10 kilometers to the finish. He struggled really hard to finish the final 10 kilometers. He wanted to give up. He wanted to keep throwing into the t in the towel. But he, here's what he writes about in terms of crossing the finish line. Yet for all the misery, here's the joy. In the last kilometer, caught in that numb stage between slight disappointment and sheer relief that I could see the end, Jill, his wife, and the kids were suddenly on the side of the road, cheering and waving and hollering. And that's when it got emotional. That's when it got like I could see the finish line as if it were the celestial city and I were pilgrim and all that pain and toil and resisting of temptation to give up were worth it. That's when the training and effort and the incremental decisions to get up and to do intervals at quarter to five on a dark morning, even when I didn't feel like it suddenly made sense. And before I knew it, I was on the blue mat for the final 30 meters and then the finish line. Three hours, 18 minutes, 29 seconds. And then it's hugs, congratulations from friends and fellow runners, well done, a few tears, one cold drink after another, and the sense. A sense of, I'm glad I didn't stop at the 33-kilometer mark. My friend Stephen is also a pastor. And on the shirt that he was running with, he had Hebrews 12 quoted, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, after finishing that race and reflecting on that quote, he writes this further. Now, I'm going to quote him again at length because I just think this is so good. Quote, and that's when that Hebrews 12 quote on my shirt made just a bit more sense. Run with endurance. It's easy to smile at the 10-kilometer mark in the Christian life. It's easy when running the Christian race to think, I've got this, especially when you're in familiar territory. Your family is fine. Your work-life balance is okay. The lure of ease and comfort is not so strong. It's easy to think you're a shoe-in to finish when you're ticking along at average pace and no emotional, relational, or spiritual headwinds are battering you. And it's easy to think that no one ever falls over or did not finish in the final third of life's race. But they do, and I've seen it. 50 to 60-year-olds who give up on Jesus because it's all too hard or because something seemingly more attractive than finishing the race comes along. I used to be surprised at it. I see that, and I'm like, how can you give up now when the prize is just so close? But with three months to go before I turn 50... And having just buried my own father this year, whose final third was a very wobbly stagger, I am sobered by how easy that could be. Sobered indeed. But in the midst of that sobriety, I'm also joyful. I am running the race still. I am on course to finish. And not because of my race, but because of his race. Jesus 
is the forerunner who went ahead of us and not only ran the race but carved out the path, measured the course, brought the ticket tape and set up the banqueting table at the end of it where we can feast and rejoice with a great cloud of witnesses Hebrews 12 tells us of. And when I cross the line, it won't read three hours, 18 minutes and 29 seconds. That's not my goal. My goal is not even two hours, 59 minutes and 59 seconds. A friend of mine has run that, by the way. It won't be numbers at all. It'll be the words emblazoned on the race clock. Well done, good and faithful servant. Everyone smiles at 10 kilometers, but in Christ, they will laugh with joy and grateful astonishment when they finish the race and then receive a share of the trophy with the victor who ran ahead of them and who is even now cheering them on. End quote. Hebrews 12 talks about enduring a race. Revelation 14 has told us today to endure through the pain and the suffering that is to come. We run the marathon because the ending and the song will be worth it. You survive and persevere in the race because the end, the finish line, will be worth it. Friends, don't give up now. Take it from someone who's just passed the 10-kilometer mark. Have a look around at those who've been running for much longer. It will be worth it in the end. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, for those of us here today who follow you, give us endurance. Help us to get through to the end. Help us to encourage each other to get through to the end where we will see you face to face and rejoice with you for eternity. As hard and difficult as life may be now, as tempting as the beast makes these, this world, as Babylon seduces us, we pray you'll help us to remember their end and the end of those who follow them. Help us to endure. And Father, for those among us here who are not sure whether they are following the, your son, who are not sure if Jesus is their king, I pray, Father, that you'd open their eyes and their hearts to have ears to hear that they would see Jesus as king is the most sensible course of life, even as difficult as it may be. So, Father, do this work within all of us for your glory and our joy forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.